Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. It is one of the most iconic images in American history. A photograph so powerful, it captured the essence of despair that gripped an entire nation over an entire time period. A woman holding a baby, two small children huddled by her side, shielding their faces over her shoulders. The woman stares into the distance, a single hand drawn to her cheek. Her expression, one of hopelessness and desolation, anxiety etched deep in the lines on her face. But who was this woman? And what was her story? How did this picture of her come to capture an entire generation's struggle through the worst economic depression the country and the world had ever experienced? Like a book cover without a story, the chapters of her life will astound you, and her feelings towards that famous image might just surprise you. In this revealing episode of the Missing Chapter Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Missing Chapter Podcast. I'm Phil Schaff here with Phil Horner. And before we get to this awesome episode, let's talk about what we're brewing today. Utica Coffee Roasting Company's Half Moon, part chocolate, part vanilla, all Utica. And for those of you that uh, that are at home that know, um, I'm from the Utica area, and everybody knows Hemstrots in Utica area. They've claimed that they are the original makers of the Half Moon cookies uh, in the early 1920s. So shout out to Hemstrots and Utica Coffee Roasting Company. And uh, hey, what a better way to start this pretty interesting episode of the Missing Chapter podcast, Phil. Yeah, yeah. And the coffee this morning is really, really good. Um, uh, as always, you know, we're getting ready to settle in and, and tell a good story, Phil. And, um, you know, it's always interesting. You never know when you're going to get the inspiration for the topic that eventually evolves into a podcast. It might be something you hear on the radio. It might be something you see on TV. You know, I, I have a 45-minute a commute to work every morning. And I got thinking about iconic images throughout history. Yep. And maybe, you know, in the future, that's a, one of our top five episodes. Um, the top iconic images from like the 20th century. Mm-hmm. You know, you could talk about JFK waving in his motorcade on that day in Dallas or, you know, the, the raising of the flag at Iwo Jima. But this particular image stuck out to me. Um, and I think most people at home will, will be familiar with it. But I got thinking... I don't know the story behind it. I'm, I'm familiar with the, the the picture, but the people who make it up, I've never learned about. And so I wanted to do a podcast around that notion, and I hope people enjoy it. The Great Depression was a severe worldwide economic downturn, and it took place mostly during the 1930s, beginning in the United States. The timing of the Great Depression varied across the world, but it's really the historical context that everything I'm going to talk about today is centered around. In most countries, including the U.S., it commenced in 1929 with the New York stock market crash and lasted in the late uh, 30s, early 40s. And the ending of the Great Depression, you know, has been widely debated, both through the effectiveness of uh, President FDR's New Deal and then the U.S. entry into World War II. During the Great Depression, the American economy went into a tailspin, with businesses laying off workers and wages for those still employed plummeting. 
between 13 million and 15 million Americans were unemployed, about 11% to 13% of the population, and couldn't find work at the peak of the Great Depression in 1933. Farmers in the Plain States were hit the hardest. The drought of the 1920s put them in an even more difficult position, where a number of farmers couldn't afford to harvest their crops and let them rot in the field. The drought ultimately led to the Dust Bowl that saw massive dust storms further devastating American farms. And while 75% of farmers remained on their farms, a massive portion of the farming population abandoned them due to the Dust Bowl or because banks foreclosed on their land. Uh, approximately two and a half million people moved out of the Plain States by the year 1940, with about 200,000 moving to California. And the reason I give that background uh, will become a little bit evident later on, because we're going to choose to focus on that one story, uh, that one family story included in those 200,000. And and we're we're of the age that we have we've had relatives in the past mm-hmm. uh, who have who have been you know been through the Great Depression, right? We know the mindset that they would still have. I know, I know some of my family members who, who had been through that, and we still still talk about, um, you know, what it was like to see mm-hmm. parents, grandparents go through the Great Depression. They always had this mindset, even after the Depression was over, of saving everything, keeping everything, and it, it's just that that constant idea of loss. Um, but yeah, th- this is this is a, a really, really tough time period for, for American history. Right. And like you said, it defined them. It defined them and it changed them forever, including their mindset, you know, post Great Depression. Right. Good. Um, photographer and journalist Dorothea Lang worked for the federal government's resettlement administration, which later became the Farm Security Administration or the FSA. The New Deal era agency had been created to help struggling farm workers. And she and other FSA photographers were assigned the task of of simply photographing and documenting Americans during the Depression. Specifically, the desperate plight of thousands of people displaced from the drought-ravaged region known as the Dust Bowl. Lang and her colleagues took over 80,000 photographs. Wow. 80,000 photographs for the organization between the years of 1935 to 1944, helping wake up you know, many to the hardships that their fellow Americans were experiencing, you know, being able to see these images, you know, if they were in the Northeast or the Pacific Northwest, wherever they were and, and showing them what other American uh, citizens were experiencing and the hardships they were enduring really changed people's mindsets throughout the Great Depression. So Lang had spotted uh, a sign for a migrant workers campsite one day while she was driving north on Highway 101 through San Luis Obispo County, approximately 175 miles north of L.A., California. Unseasonably dry weather had destroyed the local pea crop, and as a result, the pickers in this particular camp were out of work, and many of them on the brink of starvation. Lang made her way through the makeshift camp and past the tents, the shelters, and the families. And she really had had initially driven past the camp, which I think is kind of interesting. On her way home after photographing all day workers around L.A., but actually turned around. And because she really wasn't that satisfied with the picture she had gotten earlier in the day in L.A., she said, you know, I'm going to stop at this camp and take some additional pictures to kind of compensate what I got earlier in the day. So she had driven past this camp, decided to turn around last second and go back and take um, some additional rolls of film. 
one of the most iconic pictures. One of the most iconic pictures. So I guess you should always go with your gut instinct on these things. In amongst the, the sea of humanity, the, the struggling people, the struggling families, Lang came across a, a single woman surrounded by several small children and was immediately struck by how beautiful this woman was. She looked exhausted. She looked defeated in so many ways. She looked overwhelmed. But Lang said her physical beauty, disguised by dirt and dust and, and exhaustion, was very evident to her. And so she stopped and engaged the woman in conversation. The woman sat on the side of the road with five children. The story was this. The family's car had broken down while they were on their way to pick lettuce. And her husband, Jim Hill, had taken the two oldest boys with him into town to try and have the radiator fixed. She'd been left to care for the other children in the migrant camp, a camp that had just so happened to be passing by and that housed nearly 2,500 workers. Hmm. Lang convinced the woman, despite her outright reluctance, and that's something I want to establish here and come back to later on, that the woman initially was reluctant. And we'll come back to that, like I said. But Lang convinced the woman to sit for six pictures that day, including the photo that would eventually be entitled Migrant Mother, the one that I, I described in the introduction. Lang didn't ask the woman's name or find out anything about her history other than how they ended up in that, that migrant camp that day. Uh, she claimed the woman told her that she was 32 years old and that she and her children were living on frozen vegetables and birds that the children had killed. Oh my God. That's how they were getting by. According to Lang, the woman also recounted to her a story of how the family had been forced to sell off the tires from their car after it had broken down. Shortly after taking the pictures that she needed, Lang thanked the woman and left the camp and returned home. Lang's photos from that day, uh, in particular the ones in the migrant camp, were published in the San Francisco News several days later in March of 1936. It quickly quickly came to symbolize the hunger, the poverty, the despair that gripped the nation during the Great Depression. Around the same time, the U.S. federal government announced it was sending 20,000 pounds of food to the pea pickers campsite. But by the time it arrived, the still anonymous woman and her family had moved on. Even as her image was widely reprinted and reproduced on everything from magazine covers to postage stamps, the migrant mother herself appeared to have vanished. Until one day, one day, Phil, in 1978, when a woman by the name of Florence Owens Thompson decided to pen a letter to the editor of the Modesto Bee newspaper. Thompson claimed to be the woman in the now iconic migrant mother photo and, and said she had stayed anonymous for too long. Now she wished to set the, the record straight. So about how old is she at this point? At this age, well, if she was telling the truth and she was 32 in 1936, we fast forwarded 42 years. Right. Okay. So 32 plus 42. 74. Right. Mid 70s. Okay. And a lot of time has passed here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you're thinking, okay, well, why is she coming forward now? We'll find out. All right, Phil, this first half is, is phenomenal. Um, kind of left a little cliffhanger here, and I have yeah. a lot of questions. 
And uh, while we were on break, I, I looked up a couple of things. Dorothea Lang, I think, is a key figure here because, number one, the fact that she actually turned around, turned back around mm -hmm. and said, you know what, something's telling me to go here and take these pictures. Um, I think that says something, just the irony of that. Uh, the next thing is Dorothea Lang is a mother, too. And when I when I looked her up, the thing that spoke to me was the fact that she had 10 children. Yeah. So you, there's got to be some sort of connection between, you know, mothers. You're, you're a photographer behind the camera taking a picture of a mother who's struggling to survive with her kids and, and providing for her kids. There's there's so much emotion. I think that's one one of the things why the migrant mother picture became so popularized. Right. Is because you could see the pain and anguish of not just a person of a human being, but a mother. Right. And, and, you know, Phil, you bring up a good point, because I think if you remove the two children on either side of her, Florence Owens Thompson, and you remove the baby from her lap, and it's just her sitting alone in a tent, right. maybe you don't stop. But the fact that you have this woman um, with the three children. Yeah that motherly connection that, that you mentioned. I think that's a great point. And we said 80,000 images, 80,000 pictures. Why does this one, what makes one picture more iconic and more famous than another one? I guess that's something that we could talk about. And, you know, again, I, I think that might lend itself very well to a top five uh, down the road. Um, but we're going to get into so, a little bit more of the substance of who exactly Florence Owens Thompson was, what her background and how she got to this point in her life. And, one of the other things is that I want to point out is that you have this iconic image and really what it meant for both women. Neither one of them benefited financially because this was a government program and a government grant. You know, certainly Lang did her reputation um, as a photographer and, and her career from that point on. But it wasn't like Florence Owens Thompson benefited financially from this because it really it went to the government. It was a free image to everyone. It belonged to, to the United States. So it wasn't like she made money off of this or benefited financially, but it was her image. It was who she was, was what the entire picture was based around. So I think there's some resentment there. Keep that in the back of your mind as, as I lay out a little bit more of this story for you. Yeah. Cause it kind of seems like I, I would, I would certainly feel exploited. Mm -hmm. You know, here I am struggling to survive with my three kids. Right. Uh, and you're going to take a picture of me right now. Mm -hmm. I'd have a big problem with that. And then on top of that, have that be an iconic image of, of a time period, which everyone struggled in. Um, I don't think that would be something I pride myself in. Right. And, would, and do you think is that, and not to jump the gun here, maybe you're going to explain this, but do you think that's one of the reasons why she reached out? I, I do. And I think, I think you use the word exploited. She was reluctant to have these pictures taken. It took some coaxing, some convincing, and maybe in the moment she decided, okay, six pictures, that's enough. That's what I'm willing to do at this point. But later on, you know, as as things play out and you have a chance to think more about what happened and then you see that image everywhere, you start to have those second thoughts. I right. wish I'd never done that in yeah. the first place. So um, I, I definitely think that that's a, a key component to this story. And, and neither she nor Dorothea Lang to, to benefit from this financially at all. Yeah, I think there's some bitterness there too. There's got to be some yeah. bitterness, yeah. Yeah, but to give you a little bit more background to Florence Owens Thompson, exactly who she was. Here's a here's a, a fact about her that I was not aware of. She was born and raised in Oklahoma, but Florence Owens Thompson was actually 100% Native American. Really? Yeah, both of her parents were Cherokee. She and her first husband, Cleo Owens, moved to California in the mid-1920s where they found farm work and work in area mills. Cleo succumbed to tu uh, tuberculosis in 1931, leaving Florence alone to support their six children primarily by picking cotton. 
and, and an array of other crops. And when Bill Gansel, a photographer for the Nebraska Public Television, interviewed and wrote a piece on Thompson in 1979, she told him that while she was a young mother, she typically picked around 450 to 500 pounds of cotton a day That's in 1979, insane. leaving home before daylight, coming home after dark. And this was her quote to Bill Gansel. We just existed. We survived. Let's just put it that way. So essentially saying I did what I had to do in order to bring home whatever meager earnings I could to support those children. And there's a big difference. We can all agree that there's a big difference between actually living and, and surviving. Survive. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. right. So when Lang discovered her uh, in, in, in Napomo that day in March of 1936, she had two more children, was living with a man named Jim Hill, the father of her infant daughter, Norma. After their car broke down on the way to find uh, work picking lettuce, the family had been forced to pull off into the pea pickers camp. In an Associated Press article that was written shortly after the revelation was made that Thompson was, in fact, the subject of the migrant mother, um, the title of the article was, and this is very telling, Woman Fighting Mad Over Famous Depression Photo. Wow. And Thompson told a reporter, Phil, exactly what you said. She felt exploited, her word, by Lang's portrait. In a follow-up article written by Jeffrey Dunn all the way in 2002, Thompson and her children, grown up at this point, disputed other details in Lang's account and sought to dispel the image of themselves as stereotypical Dust Bowl refugees. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So yeah. is, there, is there any silver lining here or is this... I mean, I'd like to th think there is. And, and you know, I, I've struggled with this, believe it or not. As I've gone through, and, and I really I like this story, and I think it's an important story, and I think it's an interesting story, but I'm, I'm left with almost um, an unsatisfied feeling. I don't like the way the story wraps up. Okay. And, and not all the episodes we've done, Phil, certainly not all the episodes. Many of them have not had, quote, unquote, happy endings. Right. Yeah, for sure. But this one, there's something that just, it's, it's especially unsettling and unnerving. Um, there were there were some other specifics and details that Thompson and her sons wished to dispel. And this one's interesting. If you recall, Thompson's two sons were in town at the time the photographs were taken um, with their father, helping him have the car fixed. Right. OK. They denied the story of being forced to sell their tires for extra money. They said that's completely false. They didn't sell the tires. But they're, they're not saying Lang did that intentionally to kind of build up the story and yeah. create they, they, and I think this is good. So remarkably, though, they don't blame Lang. They just believe that she added that element of the story for dramatic purposes. They just felt that she wasn't being untruthful. They just felt that she had talked to so many people. Troy Owens, who was one of Thompson's sons, told Jeffrey Dunn, I don't believe Dorothea Lang was lying. I just think she had had one story mixed up with another. Mm -hmm. Or she was borrowing to fill in what she just didn't have or just didn't remember. Interesting. Okay. So it wasn't intentional and there wasn't anything, you know, with bad intentions. It right. was just, you know, she had talked to a lot of people. The family, after leaving the pea pickers camp, became truly nomadic and relocated to wherever the farm work took them, essentially. Along the way, Florence would have three more children. And at the conclusion of World War II, she remarried a hospital administrator named George Thompson. And the family settled down in Modesto, California. Sadly, in 1983, 
So this is five years after Thompson revealed her identity to the world as the migrant mother. She was living alone in a trailer, suffering from cancer. This, along with chronic heart problems, led her children to solicit donations to help offset her medical expenses. And according to Jeffrey Dunn, the family received thousands of letters from admirers and supporters, along with over $35,000 in financial contributions. Oh, my goodness. But despite these donations, Florence Owens Thompson died in September of 1983, shortly after celebrating her 80th birthday. All in all, she led a life defined by economic hardship, but really more maternal sacrifice. Yeah. And I think that that's what we should really remember is she was a devoted mother. Um, I'm going to wrap this up with a quote that I came across that was written to the family upon Florence's passing from someone who wanted to offer his condolences. And the quote is this. Mrs. Thompson's passing represents the loss of an American who symbolizes strength and determination in the midst of the Great Depression. Very, very short, concise, but I think it captures everything. And that particular quote was from President Ronald Reagan. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, everyone kind of recognized what she did for the country by simply sitting for that picture. And I, I, we talked about the silver lining earlier, and I, mm-hmm. I think something that, that we can talk about, too, is just the fact that sometimes silver linings don't don't happen right away. Sometimes it takes a generation. You that's, know what I mean? It's a sacrifice yeah. of a mother or father that you won't see the fruits of that labor until the, the children survive or mm-hmm. thrive, you know? And one of the things while, while you were talking about this, I, I looked up as well, um, maybe there, you can consider this a silver lining for other people for sure, is the fact that uh, this picture, you, you, you mentioned that the government would would be inspired by this, actually sent specifically 20,000 pounds of food to relieve starvation in the migrant worker camp. So they may not necessarily have gotten uh, the personal or financial benefit between the migrant mother and Dorothea Lang. But um, there's another part of this that I I had never known, and maybe you did too, I don't know, but um, may have helped inspire John Steinbeck's literary classic, The Grapes of Wrath. No, you brought that up during the, the, the break, Phil, and that's fascinating because I, I didn't come across that. But I think, like you said, it's, you know, it takes a while. But if you look back at, at her impact um, on history and continues to have on history and, and capture that entire ordeal for many, many Americans, um, I think Thompson has to she should have hopefully felt pride in that. Yeah. And I'm not sure if that's something she felt often. Um, and I think that's one of the things she felt like had been taken away from her by the image when in reality it gave her the pride that image did. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Schaff. And I'm Phil Horander. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.